Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be here and to look out and see some uh, familiar faces uh, out uh, in the crowd and some names that I have forgotten um, since a retreat a few years back. Uh, hearing your announcements, I kind of want to sign up to go to both camps. Um, uh, we met Jim a little while back and uh, after a trip to Malawi, actually, where he's getting ready to go. And so I'm sure you're in for a treat to hear Jim speak. And then uh, Marcus and I met in college, actually, and I had the privilege of going with him on the first trip that he ever took to the Czech Republic. And so uh, exciting to see what God has done uh, over the years. And he's kind of one of my heroes now. And I can't wait till somebody writes the biography about him and Peter Smith. So um, if you write that, I'm, I'm looking forward to purchasing a copy. Um, well, uh, bring you greetings from Faith Bible Church. I know that John was here last week, and I'm happy to be here this week. I'm sorry that my family couldn't come with me. We are also getting ready for our VBS. My wife and I are two of the five teachers, and there's a big meeting today right after church. So I said, honey, you need to go to church, and you need to go to the meeting on behalf of both of us, and then I'll come up here. And so she was sad uh, and uh, wishes that she could be here uh, with you all and I know she knows a number of you as well. Uh, well, it is a privilege for me to get to speak about the gospel and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to be in the book of Romans and so if you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 8, we'll be uh, in verses 1 through 4. But as you're turning there, have you ever noticed that there are things in life uh, that never seem quite as good as the first time? And uh, let me explain what I mean by that. A good example for me came with food from claim jumpers, okay? There is no claim jumper in Washington. And so uh, almost 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, I guess, we had our first trip down to Southern California. And our friends Bob and Jeannie Delator took us to this restaurant called Claim Jumper. And we ordered a sandwich. And it was the size of a, a semi-truck tire when it came on the plate. It was unbelievable. I'd seen a sandwich with an olive as a garnish on top. My sandwich came with an apple as a garnish on top. And this was unbelievable. In my mind, it was the most, like the largest food-sized portion I'd ever seen. Well, now we live near Claim Jumper, and I don't know if something changed, if if it was Claim Jumper, but nothing ever seems quite as grand and quite as impressive as that first trip. And then recently we were introduced to a pizza place very close to our house. And they had the most incredible garlic bread. And if you're hungry here this morning, I apologize. Uh, John Coe does golf analogies. All of us other guys of the church do food analogies. So, um, but we, we had this garlic bread and it was unbelievable out of this world. And so we multiple times have taken people back. Oh, you've got to try this garlic bread. And it has never been as good as the first time. And, and I hope that you haven't had that experience, maybe with a movie. You ever had a movie that in your head you seem to remember it being a really good movie, and then you go back and watch it again, or worse, you recommend it to somebody else, and they watch it, and you realize, that was a terrible movie. That was awful, right? What a letdown when something is that way. But then there are other things in life that they just seem to get better, right? Over time, they get better and better and better. Think of it, maybe, ladies, maybe you have your recipe, for something that you make and you've been perfecting this recipe over the years. Maybe now it's not even a written down recipe. It's all up here and you can just make it by memory. And now it's, you've, been, you've been tweaking it out a little bit different. You dial it in exactly the way you want it. And now it's ready you know, for, for blue ribbon at the Orange County Fair. It's just perfect. It just keeps getting better every time you make it. 
Something else that can get better every time is, is dates with your spouse, right? Uh, that maybe, I don't know what your first date was like. That may have been like a great experience for you. Uh, maybe it wasn't. But, but over time, if you've been married and then you continue to get that time together with your wife, with your husband, it just gets all the more sweeter, right? It gets all the better. If you have kids like me, now, dates are really great, you know, it's so much sweeter because you would leave the kids with somebody else. It's just the two of us and we get this, this special time together. So it just keeps getting better and better and better. Uh, hopefully, dates aren't the other way around and you're not taking your wife to those movies that you're wishing, you know, from before. And it's not like that. But you want to just, as you see, as your love grows and grows, that time together gets sweeter. But as we think about things in life that get better with time, that we should grow in our love and affection for, uh, there is one thing that should far outdistance all of the others, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the more we think about the gospel, the more we study it, the more we learn about it, the more we live in it, the better and the sweeter that it gets, the more that we are in the word of God and seeing the gospel come to life through the text of scriptures, the more wonderful it should become for our own hearts, the more fresh it should become, the more exciting it should become, the more real it should become. It's one of those things in life that shouldn't be losing its luster as we revisit it time and time again, but should only be growing in glory for us. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at a passage that for you is probably one you've seen before, Romans 8, 1 through 4. If Romans 8 isn't a memory verse and hasn't been for years and years and years, it needs to become one this morning and for the rest of your life. This is a passage that you've probably been at countless times. And yet my hope and prayer is that as we look at it this morning, it won't be something that's, oh yeah, heard that before, heard that message preached before, but rather that it's something that we would grow in our love for, we'd grow in our appreciation of and our admiration for as we see just the beauty and the wonder of the gospel laid out for us in this text. I believe that this is one of those passages that's gonna meet you wherever you're at this morning. It may be that you are coming off of one of the most incredible weeks of your Christian life, right? You look back and you could not have envisioned things going better than they have. You could not have envisioned more joy, more happiness in your life than what you experienced this week. Well, if so, that is the case only because of the truths that we're going to study in this passage. And so you need to be reminding yourselves of these gospel truths so that you can continue to enjoy those things. For others of you, though, this week may not have been the best week of your life. This may have been one of the absolute worst weeks of your Christian experience. This may have been a week filled with failure, pain, doubt, trials, and struggles. If so, you need the truths of Romans 8 one through four, you need this as an anchor for you in the midst of your storm, that your life and your heart, your thinking would be grounded in this truth of scripture. And I trust that this morning, the word of God is gonna give hope, hope for today, hope for your heart for tomorrow, and hope for your heart for the rest of your life. Now, the reality is for most of us is we don't live life over here on the bookend of the best week of our lives, nor do we always live life on the worst week of our lives. Real life tends to happen somewhere in the middle. It may be shaded more one direction than the other, but wherever we're at, this passage is going to meet you there, 
I believe that it will speak grace into your soul and will encourage your heart. And I think it's important before we even dive into it to understand a little bit about the context of the book of Romans because this is a passage where Paul is giving us gospel indicatives, gospel truth, not commands. All right, chapters one through five of Romans, we actually were teaching through this all of last year in our Sunday school class and chapters one through five, Paul is just taking and pumping his readers full of gospel truth, right? Tons and tons of truths about the gospel, their sin, the grace of God, faith, justification, all of these things. And then uh, it's all of these indicatives explaining the truth of salvation. Then in chapter six, he begins to introduce some imperatives. He gives them some commands relating to their sanctification. But then in chapter seven, he kind of comes back to the reality of our own Christian experience of our struggle with sin despite those gospel truths and despite those commands that we were given that we still struggle, we still wrestle. And then where does he go in chapter eight? It doesn't go to more commands. It doesn't say, therefore, in light of the struggle of chapter seven, you work harder. No, he goes to chapter eight. He goes back to the gospel because he knows our hearts. He knows what we need to be reminded of, that we need the gospel preached into our hearts every day, that the fruit of that will be love for Christ and true sanctification and heart change. And that's what God wants for us. So let me pray that God would open our eyes to see these truths one more time. Heavenly Father, we are and I am completely dependent upon and reliant upon you. Lord, we know that uh, by nature our hearts are hard and our ears are dull. Lord, we are not quick to understand the truth Lord, we are quick to to stray from it. We are quick to distraction. And yet, Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we need most. So I pray that this morning you would work. Lord, that the power of your spirit would be clearly working here in this body of believers, Lord, to cause us to hear and understand the truths of your scriptures, to help us see the application that you would make to our own lives. God, would you give me wisdom? Would you put a guard over my mouth so that I would speak only that which will be honoring to you and in keeping with your word for your glory and for the good of your people, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we look at Romans 8.1, the great truth of that passage is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for us to truly understand the good news, we really need to start with the bad news. We need to look at our own condemnation. Uh, If you think about jewelry, if uh, any of you guys did your research and your homework before purchasing that diamond that you used to propose to your wife and you go into the jewelry store, they take this incredible, beautiful little gem and what do they set it on? A black backdrop, right? Because against that black darkness, the beauty of that stone is gonna shine. It's gonna be most visible when you're looking at it against that black velvet. And so too, when it comes to the truth that there's no condemnation for us in Christ, if we are gonna see the true beauty of that, if we're gonna really understand the wonder of what that statement means, we need to see this black, hideous backdrop of the condemnation that is rightfully ours apart from Christ. Because the Bible makes it very clear that without Jesus Christ, without his saving work, that every person on this planet, no exceptions, is rightfully under the condemnation of 
a holy God. We know from just a host of passages, New Testament and Old Testament alike, that God is a holy God. But also as holy God, he is judge. He is holy and righteous and must therefore make judgment upon every person, whether they are righteous or not. Psalm chapter 9, verse 8 says, He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. So God is a holy judge. Our problem is that we are sinners, right? As sinners, we have rightfully incurred upon ourselves the wrath of God and his condemnation. And when the Bible talks about us being sinners, it doesn't say that we're just a little bit sinful, right? It doesn't say that our soul's a little bit sick, maybe a little bit weak. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. To try and describe this, theologians have to use terms like total depravity or utter depravity to try and describe the depths of our sinfulness. Uh, To grasp this, we need to understand the condemnation that we're under, okay? It is not some minor infraction that we have committed Right? We're not talking salad dressing beyond the expiration date that we've been using. Right? We're not talking about things like telling a little white lie, driving 60 in a 55 zone, and maybe we think it's kind of a gray area. Or even that we occasionally do things that we know are wrong, that every once in a while we do kind of slip up. No, the Bible says that our sin amounts to cosmic treason before the God of the universe, that we have sought to usurp his throne, his rightful place above the universe, and that we have sought instead to make ourselves God, that we have sought to be rulers of our own lives and our own destiny, that we have violated his law, we have shook our fists at him. And the reason that we do all of this is because of who we are in our very nature, that the very core of our being is sinful and is depraved. Again, we are not good people who occasionally slip up and do bad things. We are wicked and corrupt sinners who can do absolutely nothing good, absolutely nothing that is pleasing in the sight of a holy God. Now, that sounds fairly intense, right, when you think about what I have just said. Uh, And if this is true, it is no wonder that we would stand condemned by a holy and a righteous judge. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I have not quoted much scripture yet to support these wild claims that I am making. I want you instead to hear it from the mouth of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And so let me just read some passages. These are kind of all strung together. Some of them are a little bit long, as you'd bear with me. But listen to what he says about our position before holy God. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. 
And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For if by the transgressions of the one the many died, for the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. For the wages of sin is death. So what do these verses show? They show that every man, woman, and child is born with a sinful nature, that our entire human race has been affected by sin and by our rebellion against the Creator, and therefore, we are all rightly under condemnation. The wages of sin is death. That's why we look around us and we see that people die every day. We know that we are mortal. These bodies will one day die. More significantly, the Bible says, as I mentioned in Ephesians 1, that we are spiritually dead. And then most significantly, if left undealt with, the results of sin in our bodies and in our souls will be eternal death and eternal damnation by God, the righteous judge in hell forever. And so our condemnation is just. It is only right, it is only fair that God would sentence us to hell because of our rebellion against him and there's no way out of this predicament on our own and with that black black backdrop our hearts should be ready to see the incredible beauty of Romans 8 1 that there is no condemnation let me read this for you Paul says therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life uh, in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So first, the statement of what it means that there's no condemnation is found in verse one. It's very simple yet utterly profound truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word for condemnation means a damnatory sentence placed upon a guilty party. 
It is a legal term, a technical term that speaks of judging someone, bringing a sentence against them for what they have done wrong. The word condemnation is the exact opposite of the word justification. In justification, God declares someone to be righteous, right? He legally declares them to be righteous. In condemnation is the declaration of guilt, that someone is guilty, that they are condemned. But the beauty of Romans 8.1 is that Paul says, God says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Greek is emphatic there. No condemnation, not even one, not in the least. One commentator says it means that there's not a single one of any kind. So what's the point? That if we are to look at all of the guilt, all of the condemnation that could be leveled against the children of God, any kind imaginable, this verse says there is none. No guilt for Christians not a single drop of it. Despite everything that I just talked about, everything that I read from the book of Romans so far about our condemnation that is just due upon us, God says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is not an ounce of wrath or of judgment that is due upon believers. Specifically, he says, those who are in Christ Jesus. It is this union with Christ that is the key to all of it, to our justification, to why there's no condemnation. We're going to talk about that more as we move farther along in that passage. But because of our union with Christ, this sentence of death, this condemnation has now been removed from us as God's children. Now, question, does this mean that we are now perfect Right in our day-to-day living, in our day-to-day activities, that now there is nothing we would ever do that would be considered wrong. Well, we know that the answer to that is no. Right? We sin every day. Let me read for you a quote of what one commentator said about this. He said, It is often remarked that the apostle does not say that there is in them which are in Christ Jesus neither matter of accusation nor cause of condemnation, Yet this is all included in what he does say. In themselves, there is indeed, there is much indeed for both. But here they are viewed exclusively in Jesus Christ. So what does he say? It's it's not that there's no cause for condemnation in it. It's not that there's no reason that we would be accused. But that rather, God does not look upon those things in us now. That he looks upon us as being in Christ So now he sees upon us this sentence of not guilty, right, that has been placed on us, and he sees the righteousness of Christ. So all of that wrath that we read about before, all of the condemnation has been taken away. All of the guilt has been removed with it. God does not hold any of that sin over us any longer. This is a very, very practical truth. When you begin to think about the ramifications of a statement such as this. Because if God doesn't hold our sins over our heads and does not condemn us for them, two things. Number one, Christian, you and I have no right to condemn ourselves 
for these very things from which God has freed us. Number two, you have no right to condemn your fellow brothers and sisters for the sins which God has forgiven them. First, we talk about that first point practically. We have no right to condemn ourselves. It was written, it follows that if condemnation as an object of reality has been removed, there is no legitimate place for condemnation as a subjective experience. To insist on feeling guilty is but another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. How deeply embedded in human nature is the influence of works righteousness. So if you are the kind of person that finds yourself beating yourself up all of the time, you're feeling hopeless, you're condemning yourself for sins of the the recent past, of the distant past, at best, your conscience is weak and uninformed and needs to grow. At worst, your heart is pursuing a form of works righteousness by trying to make yourself feel better, by beating yourself up, by trying to heap your own condemnation back upon yourself. This is a huge temptation for all of us as believers, right? Because none of us are the person that we want to be. I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm not the dad I want to be. I'm not the friend I want to be. I'm not the pastor that I want to be, right? I sin all of the time. And yet, God, though my sanctification is not complete and I'm aware of that, God says, no, your justification is there is no condemnation. Paul knew this struggle, right? He was not a pie in the sky sort of fellow, right? Just mentioned Romans chapter 7. Let me just read a couple verses from this. This is how he described his own struggle with sin. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And we felt that, right? As believers, we felt that battle raging against our flesh and temptation, right? And so then we, we want to condemn ourselves. We want to feel guilty. We think we'll feel better if we do that. But Paul says, no, no, you will never appease your own conscience by condemning yourself as guilty, We are not condemned for those sins because Christ has borne the condemnation. We have no place to condemn ourselves. Secondarily, the second practical truth that I mentioned is we have no right to condemn others. As you think about your brothers and sisters in the faith, Jesus Christ has justified them. He has removed their guilt on the cross as well. And so we have no right to hold their sins over their head. We have no right to condemn them. We have no right to make them feel guilty, right? 
And honestly, if we step aside for a minute, if we are understanding the radical truth of what Paul is saying here, truthfully, we'll be too humbled, right? Too amazed at our own justification that God would forgive the depths of my sin. Too humbled looking at that to be trying to turn around and hold other people's sin and guilt over their heads. Now, this is not to say that there's not a place for loving, gracious, humble admonition and correction, right? That still happens. I'm not trying to um, say that, you know, that we should write that off and we never need to confront one another. But what I am saying is that there is no place for harsh, proud, self-righteous condemnation of other Christians. There's no place for us to hold on to bitterness, there's no place for us in our minds to remember the sins that others have committed against us and to hold that against them. And there's no place for us to condemn them, to belittle them, or to look down on them for their sins, all the while rejoicing in our own justification. Right? We can't do that. There is no place for that. Why? Why is that? It's because of the work of Christ. There is no condemnation Paul tells us, for all who are in Christ Jesus. Not for me, not for you, not for your fellow brother or sister in Christ. The huge theological question is, how can this be? How can this be? How can God the Father, if he is the righteous judge of the universe, how can he declare you and me to be righteous and free from sin and condemnation, knowing our guilt and we find this, and this passage worked out in the two other members of the Trinity. First, in the work of the Spirit, and second, in the work of the Son. Verse 2 shows us the work of the Spirit. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So he's talking about the law of the Spirit of life in Christ. He's talking about the power or the authority that the Holy Spirit has in contrast with the law of sin and death or the power of sin and death. The Holy Spirit is the one who has all power, right, and authority to make us alive in Christ Jesus. He is the one who does the miraculous work of regeneration, causing us as believers to be born again. We were spiritually dead in our transgressions and sins, lost in the power of that, and then the Holy Spirit comes and breathes new spiritual life into us, awakens our dead souls to believe in him now and for all eternity. And this verse says that when he does that, he sets us free from the authority of sin and from the power of sin. Grammatically, it's a sin that is leading to death. We saw Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That payment that we deserved rightfully brought upon ourselves for our sin was death and condemnation. But the Holy Spirit has the authority to grant us eternal life, to forever break the power of sin, setting us free, releasing us from those shackles so that all who trust in Christ, that freedom has now been accomplished Sin is no longer our master, never will be again. We will never say that we are slaves to sin. 
right? Again, we know that we still struggle. There's a whole battle that rages on there, but that's why we need these truths. We need to be reminded that the Spirit has the power to set us free and to give us life. He can do something that we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot make ourselves alive. We cannot remove guilt. Only God can do that. The Holy Spirit alone can regenerate us. He also is the one who sanctifies us to make us more like the Son of God. We can say for ourselves, there is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus because of the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. But not only is it because of the Spirit of God, it's also because of the Son of God. Find this in verses three and four. The role of Christ Jesus, which is key to our justification We already saw there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 happened to also mention those who are in Christ Jesus. As we get to verse 3 and 4, he's going to flesh that out all the more. The work of Christ on the cross, what he has done to bring us in union with him. He says there in verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So how can we stand here and say, no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation at all? It is because of what Christ did on the cross. It's not because of the Mosaic law. The passage says that there, that the law could not justify us. Literally, it was powerless. It was impotent to save us from our sins. The law was never intended to do that. That wasn't the purpose for why that was given. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law wasn't meant to justify us. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of obedience that we can do or fulfill that would justify us before God. You cannot take external actions or deeds and use those to change a problem within your heart and within your soul. We cannot do that. Paul says the reason that the law can't save you, the reason that the law can't justify you is because of our flesh, right? There's this unredeemed part of us that's somehow connected to our, our body and, and our you know, skin and bones and all that. And yet more than that, there's this, this, this sort of sin principle that we drag along throughout the course of this life. And that flesh is prone to temptation. It's prone to sin. And the law can't fix that. It can't change that. It can't take that away. In fact, earlier in Romans, Paul made the argument that, that, that sin actually takes advantage of the law, that it turns it around, turns on its head and uses it so that, 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 that now, wow, we, we see sin as clear and then we want to go do it. So we're tempted because it's been laid out there for us. Sin lies, it deceives us, it takes advantage of God's law and therefore the Old Testament law in and of itself was powerless to save. This verse here says that what the law was incapable of doing, what the law could not do, God did. God did it. He's the one who justifies. 
He is the one who saves. He is the one who can remove condemnation. How does he do it? How does he justify us while still remaining the just and righteous judge? Or as Paul put it in Romans 3.26, how can God be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? He did it through the cross. He did it through the cross. It says in verse three, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. The text is emphatic. God sent his own son, not somebody else's son, his own son, and he sends him in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus only appeared to be human? No, that's a heresy that's been around for thousands of years. That's not all what Paul is talking about. Rather, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to walk a very careful theological line for us. In that Christ's flesh, his body, was almost exactly like ours. What do I mean by that? He experienced all of the realities of humanity save one. He was hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired, he felt pain, he felt temptation, right? In fact, we're told by the author of Hebrews that he was tempted in all ways as we are. And the reality is too is that he was tempted more than we ever are. We always give in at some point, right? Unless the grace of God comes and saves us from that. Jesus experienced the full uh, brunt of temptation that could possibly be put on him and poured out at him. And yet, what the author of Hebrews said, he was tempted always as we are, yet what? Without sin. One crucial difference between his human experience and ours is that he never sinned. Jesus' humanity was real, and it was full, and yet it was also sinless. John Stott says that his humanity was both real and sinless simultaneously. Therefore, there was the need for the virgin birth, right? Jesus needed to be fully human. He needed a human body if he was going to experience all these things that we are going to experience, right? Uh, And if he was going to die in our place, uh, and yet he needed to remain free from the curse, how could God do that? Well, he could do that through the virgin birth. And that's exactly what he did so that Christ could live a perfect, sinless, human life, therefore putting him in a place to die in place of our sins, right? We can't atone for our sins. We can't be our own savior. We need another who can do that. If Christ had sin of his own, he could not have died as a a substitute for others. And yet, God works this perfect miracle where he comes in the flesh yet without sin, so that he can die as an offering for sin. The text says here, an offering for sin. And what Paul was thinking about was the Old Testament sacrificial system. The law required the sacrifice of a spotless lamb or bull or goat, this this, this animal that was without blemish, it was free from defect, and then that animal would be killed to atone for the sins of the one making the offering, right? The innocent would bear uh, the guilt of the guilty party, and yet all of that sacrificial system, all of those sacrifices and offerings were looking forward to one sacrifice, to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would die once for all 
to take away sin. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. When Jesus came and gave his life as an offering for sin, the text says that he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul actually uses the exact same word from Romans 8.1, right? That same word for condemnation. Well, different form of the exact same word. And so Jesus dies as a sacrifice for sin. God pronounces his judgment for sin on Christ. Now there is no judgment and no condemnation left for believers. Jesus bore every drop of the full cup of the wrath of the Father. He bore it all. God didn't sweep any of it under the rug. He did not turn a blind eye. Right? He could not somehow ignore the condemnation that we deserved. Instead, he dealt with it full on in the person of Christ. He fully condemned Christ on our behalf so that there would be no condemnation for us. When Christ died on that cross, bearing the wrath of God, he in turn condemned sin once for all. There's an astounding picture that Paul weaves into this text where sin had corrupted the flesh of man, one person wrote, and in that flesh it was condemned. So God sends his own son in that same flesh that had been corrupted by sin, and then here it says he condemns sin once for all. Jesus makes an end of sin and the penalty of it when he dies, fully appeasing the wrath of God, fully meeting all of the demands of God's justice. There's a picture for us of this found in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So imagine with me, if you were to get out a piece of paper, on that piece of paper, begin to list every sin you could think of. A little divine help, you would list every sin in your past, the ones that you'd forgotten about, the ones, honestly, that you were unaware of and didn't know. And we're gonna look forward. You're gonna take all of the sins that you have not yet even committed and all of those get listed there on that piece of paper. Every reason that a holy God has to condemn you, you write them all down on that piece of paper and he takes that list and he puts it in the hand of his son. Christ's hand is now bearing your condemnation and the nail is taken and driven through that list, through his hand, into the cross and in an instant, all of that sin is paid for. All of that condemnation is now taken, heaped on the perfect son of God. It is removed from you and it is taken away. God removes our condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But there are two sides to justification. See, God doesn't stop there. That's not enough that he would merely remove our sin. There's something else that must happen. God does not just forgive us and somehow leave us in some neutral state. Look again at verse 4. It says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What was the requirement of the law? Well, it was perfection. Perfect obedience. Perfect righteousness. Anything less than that was transgression. It was sin. It was a violation of the law of God. But Jesus fulfilled that law perfectly in his life here on this earth. And in our justification, God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now it is as if we had fulfilled the law perfectly. And I love what Paul says here. He doesn't say that the requirement of the law is fulfilled by us. This is not saying that God takes away our condemnation. Now we can go obey the law and we can do it on our own. No, it says it's fulfilled in us. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's the one who fulfilled the law. Now that righteousness is placed on us as his children, as believers. We are now clothed in the spotless righteousness of the Lamb. That's how God can say there's no condemnation. We're standing before the Lord with our sins forgiven, robed in the righteousness of Christ. There's a song that my kids and I uh, listened to quite a bit. It's a kid's song, and it's an allegory about a little girl named Penelope Judd. And uh, she is a mud kid. She comes from a town called Mud. And uh, she receives this invitation, this little girl, to go to the palace of the king. The invitation comes from the king himself. She's invited to go. And it's very similar kind of to Pilgrim's Progress and this journey that she takes, uh, all wrapped up in the form of this song as she's traveling from this town of Mud up to the king's palace. And uh, let me read you uh, the song. Um, for your sakes, no tunes, lyrics only, okay? Uh, but, but listen to this and this picture of righteousness being imputed. She gets to the castle and it says this, or the palace. Penelope rang the bell. A huge angel answered, looked her up and down. She knew something was wrong because he had a big frown. Can I help you, ma'am? Yes, I'm here for the party. I have an invitation. He said, I'm so sorry. There's no way that I can let you through these doors. The king won't let anyone dirty up his floors. She didn't understand. So without coming near her, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a mirror. And for the very first time, she saw that she was dirty. The palace was spotless. She knew she was unworthy. As the angel continued, I'm sorry, little friend, but um, a voice inside the party said, you can let her in. The next thing she knew, the prince himself was at the door. He smiled at her. Uh, he looked at her, smiled, and said, there's room for one more. He reached out and touched her. Instantly, she was clean, wearing the brightest robe that she had ever seen. If the mud kids had seen it, they would have gone blind. Where'd you get it? She asked. He said, actually, it's mine. And that's a picture there of what God does for us. We're like that little mud kid, filthy, sinful, 
rotten and we don't even know it. And then God reaches down, justification. He takes away our sin. He removes all the filth. And then he clothes us with his very own righteousness now and for all eternity. Therefore, we Christians can stand before the holy, righteous God of the universe and know that there is no condemnation for us because we are in Christ. God does not condemn us. He already condemned His Son. Therefore, we cannot condemn ourselves. We cannot condemn anyone else because God has already condemned Christ Jesus. And the work that Christ did on the cross was perfect. It was complete. It was absolutely sufficient to cover all of the sins of the elect. So if you're here this morning and you've never placed faith in Christ Jesus, you have never trusted him for your salvation, then you stand here clothed in your own sin, not in the righteousness of Christ. You cannot say there is no condemnation. If you are apart from Christ this morning, all you can say is that there is certain condemnation and certain wrath for me. And yet Christ offers this justification to all who would believe. The removal of sin. The imputation of perfect righteousness for all who would repent and believe in Him. Christian, brother and sister, let's remember this truth. There's no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation for me today and every day in Christ Jesus. No matter what you've done, if there's something that you are holding on to and you feel like you can never forgive yourself or nobody else could ever forgive you for it, it's wrong. There's no condemnation. Jesus has already paid for it all. You are not condemned. If you're battling with guilt and if you just want to keep condemning yourself, then by the grace of God, Stop. Stop. Rest fully in the completed work of Christ on the cross. Embrace by faith what he has done for you and that he has finished the work. Respond not in guilt and not in work, but respond in love for him, for what he has done. Constantly saturate your mind with the truths of your justification. And this morning, if you're battling with a heart that is condemning others for what they've done, if there's something that you want to see them pay for, if there's some retribution that you feel that they're due and so you don't want to forgive, you're leaving no hope for change in people's lives by the grace of the gospel, then by that same grace, I would implore you, stop. Stop. Leave room for God's grace. Remember all that he's done for you. Think of your list of sins nailed through the Savior's hands. Remember, nobody knows my sin like I do. Nobody knows the depth of it like I do. Nobody knows your sin like you do. Remember what God has done for you. 
and let that give you a humble attitude of love and forgiveness for others. There's no condemnation for them. Christ's work is complete. Truths like this are glorious when we stop and think about the realities of what they mean. They can even be overwhelming. Right? Think about the freedom that they give. You may have been the kind of person that your heart has been shackled with guilt for years. Maybe your entire Christian existence has been dragging along some of that guilt because you thought that was going to somehow do you good in the kingdom of God. Know that you are free from that because of this truth. There is no condemnation for you. But then the beauty of this truth, too, is that as you think about this, as you dwell on this, this becomes a form, and I would say the greatest form of motivation, that when we look at what God has done for us, what could motivate it? It wasn't anything in us, right? There, in us was nothing but sin and reason for condemnation. But then we see the great love of God. We see his mercy and what he has done for us. And there's only one right way that we can respond to that. And that's in love, right? That we in wonder and amazement have great affection and love for him because of what he has done, because of the faith that the Holy Spirit has granted to us. We then worship him because of the truth of the gospel. And this, I believe, is the seedbed for obedience. Think about the Apostle Paul. There were some charges at times leveled against him. Some would have said, and maybe they'd say it today, and the same thing they say to Paul, Paul, if all you preach is grace, if all you say is no condemnation, doesn't that mean that then we can just sin all we want, right? There's, not, there's, no, there's no guilt, it's all free, do we just do whatever we want? Paul had an answer for that, and he used it over and over and over in the book of Romans. He said, may it never be, may it never be. If your heart is resting in the truth of the gospel, if you are standing in utter amazement that the God of the universe sent his son to die, to suffer your condemnation, that you are now forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you will want to obey out of love. You won't look at him and say, great, so now I can go do whatever I want to do. We will look at that and say, God, I want to live for you. I love you. I want to obey your word. I want to do what you've shown me here. These truths are glorious and incredible. Grace and love, the true motivations for obedience. And so as we look at these verses, these are powerful, powerful verses. Even though Paul wasn't giving commands, the, the ripple effects of these more like shock waves that it sends through our lives when we understand these truths, when we grasp them. Will we ever fully get it? No. So we need to spend our lives thinking about the gospel and thinking about these truths, uh, just really reveling in our justification, knowing that there is no condemnation as that is how God transforms us. That is what grows our love for him. That is what grows our love for one another. So we have seen that we are free from guilt, free from self-effort. What does God call us to do is to gaze at the Savior, to look at him and revel in his completed work on the cross. Brothers and sisters, there is now no condemnation for you and for me, for one another in Christ Jesus. Let's rejoice in that together this week. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the work of your son on the cross. There is nothing like it. There is nothing that could compare. God, we rejoice in all that he has done. We are 
just amazed. We could never dream that you would do something like this. We wouldn't give our son to save others, and yet you gave your perfect son. Praise you for the beauty and wonder of justification, how that works itself out in our lives. And I pray that this morning you would help us internalize these truths by the power of your spirit, help us apply them. I pray, God, that relationships would be changed. Father, I pray that attitudes would be changed, that people would be set free from guilt, and that, God, all of this would resound for your glory so that you would be lifted up that much would be made of you, that your name would be shown to be great as it is. We pray all of this in the beautiful, precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.